Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. Hey, podcast listeners. This is Greg Dalton. You're listening to our new C1 Review, a podcast connecting highlights from three shows. Thanks for joining our conversation. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future. I'm Claire Schoen. Today, our host, Greg Dalton, looks at the costs of brown energy and the risks of investing in fossil fuel stocks. I'm not particularly bullish on fossil fuels. And we have a very negative view on coal, um, both inside the U.S. and outside the U.S. China is also waking up and smelling the pollution. One of the most historic things that happened in the last 12 months is the leaders of both the U.S. and China stood together and said, we're going to work together to cut coal use. Clean and cool fuel, up next on Climate One. is changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. These Climate One conversations, hosted by Greg Dalton, were recorded before a live audience at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan public forum in San Francisco. Fossil fuels are at the core of the climate challenge. Even Saudi Arabia's oil minister has said that the fossil fuel merry-go-round will wind down one day. But soon enough? Are companies actually going to leave their oil, coal, and gas assets in the ground? That won't make stockholders very happy. And emerging economies are rising on the fumes of this cheap energy. As we look for ways to reduce our carbon footprint, familiar culprits come to mind. The car's tailpipe, the air conditioner, even our hamburger. But our laptops? Really? How much of a carbon impact are we making from posting, liking, tweeting, and buying online? The massive internet data centers that run our cyber lives are powered by energy. But how much and from what sources? Can we green our computer-driven lifestyle? To answer these questions, Greg talked to four people who are moving Silicon Valley companies toward a cleaner future. 
Gary Cook is Senior Policy Analyst with Greenpeace International. Lori Duval is Global Director of Green at eBay. Christina Page is Global Director of Energy and Sustainability Strategy at Yahoo. And Bill Weil is the Sustainability Guru at Facebook. Here's our conversation about sustainability and the Internet. Gary Cook, Greenpeace launched an unfriend coal campaign aimed at Facebook. So tell us why you did that and how that campaign unfolded. Well, about 2009, 2010, we were looking at uh, who are the big drivers of electricity demand. And certainly what came up on our radar was the fact that the IT sector has a huge energy footprint. Many companies in the sector were growing very quickly and were actually increasing demand for coal. Facebook actually happened to be one of those companies, a very iconic brand that people were very uh, emotional about sharing their lives with. And so we challenged Facebook users to ask Facebook to unfriend coal and uh, had a, quite a bit of uptake and have seen a real change from them in the, in the inter, intervening time. And they became the first company to go 100% renewable power on their data centers, is that right? They were the first one to commit to be 100% renewably powered. And so they sort of set a, a bar for others to follow. And in 2012, uh, we were uh, knocking on Apple's door. They uh, also embraced the challenge, became the second one to be, uh, commit to be 100% renewable. And Bill Wallach, what was your response when Greenpeace started putting this pressure on Facebook and, and uh, in words you can say on radio, uh, what, was your, uh, what was your response? One of the, I think, the, the wonderful things, maybe ironic things about it is the fact that they used Facebook extensively for the campaign. Um, and, and it was very effective. So those of you who are looking to run campaigns, Facebook is a great way to do it. Um, um, we'd started... Um, before, in fact, that campaign started, we'd started down the road of how can we reduce our footprint. And so Facebook has pledged to be 100% renewable. How much is it renewably powered today, and when will you get to 100? We haven't put a date on 100%, but we did set a goal two and a half years ago to be at 25% clean energy for 2015. So this is the year to see how we're doing. I think we'll, we'll surpass that. And our goal is to then increase that in the coming years uh, and hopefully very quickly. Lori Duvall, Greenpeace gave fairly low marks to eBay, a D for renewable energy commitment and a C for deployment. So I'd like to hear your thoughts on what your plans are for getting greener. You know, we, we store all of these pictures and descriptions and all these things, and storage is an enormous part of our footprint. So how do we, how do we optimize that? You know, eBay has only just dipped its toes in the water as far as sourcing cleaner energy specifically for the data centers. I mean, we have a history of of green building and and have some nice installations on site at some of our campuses, but we have looked at ways that we can really focus on the data center. One of our biggest accomplishments in the last few years has been the last data center that we opened, we actually put an on-site installation running on fuel cells that are not 100% carbon-free but significantly lower carbon than the grid power which was not only a great investment on our part to lower our footprint, but to also uh, increase the reliability of the power going to our infrastructure because, you know, those are our factories, our data centers. They must continue to run, and they must provide a level of reliability to keep the business successful. So, yes, okay, we we set a goal. um, We actually achieved it. Everybody thought that was good. Now let's set a bigger goal. 
And is it helpful or is it a nuisance to have pests like Gary Cook sitting next to you from Greenpeace, you know, creating external pressure? No, it's, it's incredibly helpful for people in my role to have those outside voices, you know, bringing that to your executives because one of the things that they value very much is the quality of our brand and how people perceive us. And so that can be incredibly powerful. Christina Page, Yahoo's been through lots of ups and downs, six CEOs since you've been at, at the company. So what happens to the green commitment when there's those overarching corporate concerns? And it was 2008, in the middle of recession, we built and designed our most efficient energy and water efficient data center to date. We built it in western New York, which was in desperate need of jobs then, and uh, it runs at about 40% less energy than a conventional data center does. It's a passively cool data center. It's long, narrow building, looks kind of like a chicken coop. And we open the windows 90% of the year. Conventional wisdom with data centers up until very recently, is seal it up as tight as a drum and blast a whole bunch of cold air mechanically generated in it, and you're consuming as much energy to keep the servers cool as you are to run the servers. So for me, a big part of the value proposition for green that makes it really robust is can you make an argument for it in favor of the bottom line, even in tough economic times? Bill Weil, is clean always more expensive than dirty conventional? Is that still true? Absolutely not. Today, with the cost declines we've seen in solar and and what we've seen in wind as well, in many places, it is cheaper to use clean energy than it is to use the the sort of standard grid mix. Sometimes it requires capital up front, but then you save money on the operating costs over the life of, of whatever the asset is, the building, the server, whatever. So it's just a win, no matter how you look at it. Gary Cook, let's talk about some of the companies that didn't score so well from Greenpeace in terms of Silicon Valley. Uh, IBM, HP, Cisco, they're companies that tend to do more business to business. Why do you think those companies don't fare as well when it comes to clean energy? They just haven't, uh, haven't put their money where their mouth is, to be honest. And I think that's starting to change for some companies like HP, I think, who is starting to make more moves. The company that falling the furthest behind has been Amazon, unfortunately. They actually host a huge part of the internet. So the companies that we use all the time, like Netflix and Airbnb and Yelp and... Formerly Climate One, but no longer. But yes, yes go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> good job. Uh, so they don't own their data centers. They just go to Amazon. And where most of Amazon has their footprint in the U.S. is in Virginia, which is, you know, has single-digit renewables. And so you're increasing demand for coal and natural gas in that state. So it really matters where the cloud touches the ground and whether these companies have commitments to renewables. We're talking about climate change in Silicon Valley at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and our guests today are Gary Cook from Greenpeace, Lori Duvall from eBay, Christina Page from Yahoo, and Bill Weil from Facebook. Lori Duvall, it's interesting that a lot of this green energy is happening in red states. Is that a coincidence, or is that something that's that's by design because... Facebook went into Iowa, uh, eBay went into Utah, North Carolina, Apple's there. So Utah, what did you get done there? When we went into Utah, we thought, well, of course we want to try to have cleaner energy for the data center, but realized that it actually was against the law to contract with a third party in Utah to buy clean energy. And in this case, we actually were partnered with utilities, with a Republican state senator, 
with some other local businesses to actually make the case from a true jobs, attracting new companies, having a healthier business environment in Utah, we were able to get the law changed. And now you can buy clean power, not just us, but anybody in Utah, including residents, um, including our employees who are now able to put rooftop solar on their houses if they want to with a third-party company. And so, you know, it really shows you have to stay flexible in these conversations. You have to understand who you're talking to and be able to make the case. There are a lot of good reasons to make these changes. It's not just because it's the right thing to do for the climate. That's a great reason, but it's not always the reason that motivates everybody. Gary Cook, your thoughts on green energy in red states? Companies who are motivated have commitments to renewable energy. This becomes part of the conversation when they're going to a new location, and everyone wants to be the one that you know, gets Facebook or Microsoft or whoever to come to their state. That's a, a big win for them politically. It creates jobs as the tax base, and you can actually get you know, the politicians to become advocates for changing the rules in a way that allows companies who are motivated to have better options. And so I don't know how much red state versus blue state, but everyone wants more jobs in their state and more companies saying we need want renewables, that's going to have a big impact. So let's talk about the vulnerability of Silicon Valley. A lot of your corporate campuses are in areas where you may need to kayak to them in, in, in the future. Bill Weil, Facebook is building a, a gorgeous new campus. Have you thought about the sea level coming into that beautiful new building? We worry about sea level rise. It's not just a problem for Silicon Valley. I live here in San Francisco. You know, there have been problems at high tide events where water is coming up on the Embarcadero uh, you know, yeah. along the, the bay and going into the first floor buildings. So we're already suffering problems around here. Long term in Silicon Valley, there are lots of people in the communities and all the major companies that are based down there worrying about this. One of the ways to deal with it is to really address global warming and to reduce emissions and reduce CO2, which will slow and eventually hopefully stop sea level rise. And then at some point, we're going to have to protect ourselves. Laurie Duvall, some people think that the tech firms are so rich that they'll just pack up and move up the hill, you know, abandon at some point when the water starts to come. Yes, they could. But a lot of us, we have millions of customers. And a lot of them live in vulnerable coastal zones, not only in North America, but all over the world. Our IT supply chain relies on areas that have been heavily impacted already by large weather events, like the floods in Thailand a few years ago. So we rely heavily on uh, logistics networks to make online commerce happen. And those could be heavily disrupted. So that's one of the reasons we're committed to trying to work on this issue, not just in our own silo as our own company, but collectively. And the potential impact of sea level rise on us and even on our supply chain is probably much less than it is on very poor populations in close proximity to the sea in various places around the world. So the people who are going to be most affected soonest are the ones who can least afford to deal with it. We're talking about greening Silicon Valley. Let's have our audience question. Welcome to Climate One. I wanted to know if Greenpeace is involved in the strange, strange red state coalition in Georgia and Florida in which Tea Party folks are joining with environmentalists in the area to advocate for uh, rooftop solar being able to feed back into the grid. Are you guys involved in that? Gary Cook? Yeah, we've still been watching that with, with great interest. There's a lot of you know, merging of interest on people who want to have 
more access. They're really tired of the utility bills going up and up, and they want clean energy. And so there, you've seen a marriage you know, begin to form where they're actually pushing you know, from the right and from the left for the same thing, which is great. And we're starting to see some of that in North Carolina as well. A lot of places in the South, you have you monopoly utilities, no choice, very poor access to renewables, and the utility wants to keep it that way. People are tired of that, and they want to have better options. They want to have renewable energy. Georgia is a great example. We're hoping that will spread. We sort of see that a bit in other parts of the country as well. Greg Dalton has been talking about greening the Internet with Gary Cook of Greenpeace International, Lori Duval from eBay, Christina Page from Yahoo, and Bill Weil at Facebook. Free podcasts of this and other Climate One conversations are available on our website at climateone.org. You're listening to Climate One. This is Climate One with Greg Dalton. Many economists understand that making the switch to clean and green energy will be good for the bottom line in the long run but not necessarily for everyone, everywhere. The value of big energy companies is based on their assets. That's the coal, oil, and gas that they own, but that's still underground. And if we don't drill baby drill, their stocks will suffer. And a whole lot of ordinary Americans own those stocks. So do our pension funds. Greg talked to three professional investors about the implications of this carbon bubble. Kurt Billick is chief investment officer at Bocage Capital, a hedge fund based in San Francisco. Anthony Hobley is CEO of Carbon Tracker Initiative, a London-based think tank. And Ann Simpson is senior portfolio manager at CalPERS, California's $300 billion pension fund giant. Here's our conversation on the future of energy companies. Kurt Bullock, are you bullish on fossil fuels? Uh, No, I'm not particularly bullish on fossil fuels at the moment. Uh, I would say that we have a very negative view on coal, um, both inside the U.S. and outside the U.S. I would think that we are closer to the bottom in oil and gas, but I don't see that they're going to come rebounding back particularly fast. Anthony Hobley, are you betting that they're going to go down? I think fossil fuels are getting more expensive. The cost of finding, developing, and delivering, particularly oil, but I think this applies to the other fossil fuels, is going up at an incredible rate. At the same time, as we're seeing renewables, things like wind and solar, are becoming cheaper. And we call this the climate swerve, and we know which side we want to be on. Will oil industries grow? Will they adapt, or will they become dinosaurs? Ann Simpson. Yeah, so the whole purpose of the corporate form is to allow the aggregation of capital, financial Mm. capital. It's also to allow a continuation of activity beyond the lifespan of the founders. It's also to allow for a transfer of ownership and limited liability. So this vehicle has been designed to be economically successful. And as the shift in energy supply and needs unfolds over the next few years, these companies need to adapt. John Hoffmeister was here Not too long ago, former president of Shell Oil, here's what he had to say about the future of oil companies. The oil industry will stop growing. In other words, the two and a half billion that are coming into the middle class will soak up a lot of what would otherwise be excess capacity, which would be shut down. 
So there's the former president of an oil company saying oil industries will stop growing. Yeah, isn't it interesting how oil executives see the light once they've uh, retired? John Brown, former CEO of BP, is also speaking great wisdom mm. on the virtues of addressing climate change. Just like generals who retired during the Cold War and said, all those nuclear weapons that I spent my career building, we ought to take them down now that I'm no longer in the military. Kurt Billick, I'd like to have your comment to that. As economies mature, they become more energy efficient. And it's true that as new economies start climbing that industrialization curve, they start demanding more oil, but the technology and the innovation will get transferred much more quickly to these emergent economies. Our view is, is that at least in, in the foreseeable future, the demand for oil is going to grow about 1% a year, which isn't a particularly fast growth rate. Anthony Hubley. Carbon Tracker is known as the carbon bubble people. We created this idea that you cannot burn it all. You simply cannot burn all the fossil fuels in the ground and stay below 2 degrees, or 3, or 4 degrees for that matter. 2 degrees Celsius, that's the level at which the world community said should not go beyond. But this is, this is a carbon bubble, it's not an energy bubble. Demand for energy is going to go up, but fossil fuels are increasingly not the only way of delivering that energy. So the coal industry suddenly, I don't know if you've noticed, they've got very concerned about poor people, and they want to, you know in a charitable way, I'm sure, <laughs> in a char charitable way, I'm sure, bring energy to the world's poor, which is, is quite touching. But we, we did this um, analysis to look at the financials of delivering energy to the world's energy poor via coal or via solar. Mm. And it's clearly cheaper to provide energy and electricity to the world's poor via solar for a whole range of reasons. So I think we're seeing a massive transition. And I think the problem for the incumbents is that when you look back at all of the big technological shifts from steam to automobiles, from traditional cameras and film to digital cameras, and you could go on, the incumbents almost never make that transition, and they go out of business. Kurt Billick, the conventional view on Wall Street is that technology will change, that this doomsday scenario won't come to fruition. Is that correct characterization? No, I think you're ascribing too much forethought uh, to Wall Street. <laughs> most of the financial industry that we think of as Wall Street are incentivized on much shorter time cycles. And so therefore, you're going to be much more reactive. And you're going to react to the situation as it evolves. And while it's nice to think in 10 and 20 year cycles, I would think that that's just not kind of how the financial markets work. And so I don't think that anybody actually even has thought to say, oh, technology will solve this problem. I think they're saying, we'll deal with this problem tomorrow get rich today, we'll be in a better position to deal with it tomorrow. And Ann Simpson, a lot of people look to CalPERS to be at the cutting edge of investment trends. The CEO of any large American company, they're mm. going to be in there for three or five years. Their time horizon and interests are very different than yours. So uh, what is CalPERS doing on fossil fuels? going to hold on a little longer and get out before the crash comes? You know, CalPERS has that $300 billion in trust for well, the best part of 100 years. I mean, if you shut the door tomorrow morning at Kelpers, we'd still have to be paying pensions for about 75 mm -hmm. years. And if you look ahead, with that time horizon in mind, you need to be thinking about sustainability. Kurt Billick, I want to get you in here because hedge funds are often thought of being very short-term minded, in and out quickly. There, there are 5,000 hedge funds approximately in the world. And so, you know, some hedge funds are very long-term thinking. Some hedge funds are thinking about what's going to happen in the next 24 hours. Do you have an example of a long-term hedge fund? Sure, Valpost. <laughs> but how long is long? Years. Decades? <laughs> 
years, not decades. No, that's not a long yeah. time then. <laughs> so um, historically, the oil industry, actually one of the things that they're most incentivized for is for growth, and it's to demonstrate growth in mm. production. But you've got to look at the portfolio manager. You have to look mm. at his incentive as well. Generally, our investors judge us on weekly and monthly performance, and so the, the incentives are just not there along the entire chain to be thinking in this fashion. And Simpson. The simple fact here is that uh, companies are owned by pension funds and people with 401ks and mutual funds. And if we think like owners, we turn to these boards and say, well, your boards of directors are there to act on our behalf. So for these companies still to be in business, they need to be able to address these new risks like climate change and understand where the opportunities lie. You can't just shut your eyes, cling tight and hope for the best. So we're really focusing on the theme of board accountability, that we need people in boardrooms who get this, who can think long-term. So the question is, who's on the boards of these companies? What sort of reporting are we requiring them to make? What are we incentivizing them to do? Mm. We pay them to jump out the window and scream hello. They might do that too. But the point about incentives is we must get them aligned over the long-term with the needs of the corporation, not the you know, ambition of the individual manager. But we don't, at the moment, have financial reporting which captures these risks and these issues. We're talking about clean energy and climate change at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and our guests are Kurt Billick from Bocage Capital, a hedge fund, Anthony Hobley, CEO of Carbon Tracker Initiative, a financial think tank, and Ann Simpson, a senior portfolio manager with CalPERS, the California Pension Fund. An investor who has a 401k, maybe they manage some funds. What choices does an individual investor have, Anthony Hobley? If you buy the S&P 500 index, smart thing to do. A couple of the top companies in there are going to be Chevron, Exxon, etc. It's hard to avoid these fossil fuel stocks. What can, a, what can an investor do? It is very difficult. There are some fossil-free um, indices and funds that now exist, so you could invest in those. Or you could write to your money manager, your um, asset manager. I I was speaking to a manager last year of one of the big UK pension funds. And he said, you know, if I got 20 or 50 or even 100 letters from people asking me, how am I addressing and dealing with climate risk within the companies whose shares I'm buying on your behalf, that I would take that seriously. He said, I'd probably take it seriously if I got five letters. So I think you you can engage with those. It's your money. And And they manage on your behalf. you, You have something important, which is the vote. Yes. So... There are going to be annual general meetings. And shareholders say, we want risk reporting. We want stress-tested scenarios. We want to see how your business could possibly function within Mm. the targets set by the international community for a two-degree rise. Kurt Billick, is this going to have any impact on these big companies, or is this going to be a little nuisance that they swat away? Uh, I think it's a nuisance that they swat away, quite frankly. So a I, lot of uh, utility. I can't let this Anne point Simpson, about... take a swing. Um, I would just think about a company considering that the owners are a nuisance to be swatted away. This would be a bit like a politician saying, well, mm. the people who elect me are a complete pain in the neck because they have opinions and but, they want to express But American companies them. are not democracies. Many shareholders don't vote their proxies. It's a pain. Well, that's also true in the political process. But do mm. we then suggests that the electorate is a nuisance. No, quite the reverse. I think there is an, a, an alignment of thinking between very different investors agreeing on this concept of mm. board accountability. Anthony Hobley. 
companies are democracies. It's just that the voters do not exercise the right to vote. But I think that is changing both yeah. here and in Europe. I mean, for the first time ever, board resolutions on climate have been launched against BP and Shell in Europe. And BP and Shell were so worried that you know, they were going to lose those, they have recommended their shareholders to vote for those climate change resolutions. That's, that, that's big. Paul Gilding is an author who wrote a book called The Great Disruption, talks about a Pearl Harbor moment. Japan attacks Pearl Harbor. Washington says, Detroit, you're no longer making cars, you're making airplanes. Mm. Dramatic government intervention. Anthony Hobley, is that what it's going to take? What you are describing is the disorderly, chaotic transition versus the orderly transition. You know, when governments have to step into that scale, they're not going to care about the economic fallout and the stranded assets. They're going to care about dealing with the problem. We have still got time, but you need the industry to recognise and realise it's got to shrink as the alternatives come up and take its place. If you kick the can down the road yet again, you raise the risk and the probability of that panic, that, you know, I was going to swear, but I won't, that moment... When you Bloody go, oh, awful. when you go, you oh my God! That, you can hey, say that. You. you can say that on American radio. Anne <laughs> Simpson, uh, former. I sec- was swearing for Anthony to spare, <laughs> him, spare his blushes. I was expecting the Brits to be well we'll behaved up here today. Not yeah. to be, yes. um, can I say something about this transition? Sure. So here's good old Calpers. We're thinking in 70-year cycles because we're a pension fund. There is a plan. We don't need this, you know, bombing of Pearl Harbor. There is a plan which has been broadly agreed through the creative chaos of the intergovernmental meetings. There is this plan for what needs to be done by each government, number one, and what needs to happen by sector. One chunk will be dealt with through energy efficiency, and that's very nice for companies because it's typically a way that you cut costs. Another chunk is going to be tackled through the continuing development of renewables, um, Mm. which are getting cheaper, more available, and that's another bit. Another chunk is carbon capture. Another chunk is carbon sequestration. And nuclear has a little role in their vision of the future. And fossil fuels dwindle out, dribble out their reserves over quite a long period because the the ecosystem globally has the capacity to absorb an amount of carbon. I think what we want to do as a global investor who's part of all those sectors is make sure that the strategies of those companies actually line up with that plan. But it's very doable. I'm not in a doom and gloom mode about this, but we need far more accountability in the financial Mm. markets. I want to talk a little bit about another risk. Some former secretaries of the Treasury, George Schultz, Hank Paulson, Mayor Bloomberg came out with a report on on risky business, and they Mm. said not just fossil fuel stocks, but there's risk to roads and infrastructure, property. So, Ann Simpson, tell us about risk to other assets, people who have waterfront homes, for example. Yeah, absolutely. What's tended to happen in the investment world is thinking it's something you can measure. Risk is multifaceted Mm. and not captured through the traditional measures like volatility or tracking error. In other words, we need new tools, new information, new reporting, and ultimately new models. And we've taken the first step in that by deciding that we want to map our carbon footprint in the CalPERS portfolio. This is no mean task. And that means looking at each sector and each company, not just fossil fuels. You know, think about your hamburger. Think about the methane that comes mm. out the rear end of a cow. Don't just be thinking Do about... Or a heifer, did you say? Do I have to? 
Oh, sorry. (laughs) But things to do with agricultural land and the issue of water use, the management of this scarce, precious resource called water, making climate risk something that's on the political agenda as well as the economic agenda and something that everyone who lives here is very aware of. And and I think there's there's actually a lot of complexity around this. Um, Like, for instance, I sometimes sit behind a bus and the bus says, powered by biodiesel. And that sounds really wonderful, but most of the biodiesel in California powering that bus comes from a plant in Singapore that is using palm oil where they've chopped down the rainforest in order to build the palm plantations that, that ultimately is firing that bus. And so I think that you really do have to think through the entire life mm-hmm. cycle. Yep. That electric car gets its electricity from somewhere. Is it ultimately as carbon neutral as it feels? We're talking about energy and climate change at Climate One. Let's have our first question. Welcome. Hi, my name is Wayne. And I'm a member of 350.org. Um, mostly for you, Anne, you think of yourself as an owner of the companies mm-hmm. that CalPERS invests in. But I wonder if you would be willing to think of divesting from oil and gas companies, and particularly coal companies, because there is so little time left for us to get off of fossil fuels. Anne Simpson. The way that we approach divestment is that we see it as a last resort. The problem when you divest is you lose your seat at the table. You sell your shares to someone else. We have no confidence that the person on the other side of that trade gives you know, two figs about what happens at the energy companies. The bigger and probably more difficult question is how do we organize the owners, the shareholders of these companies, to get the strategies and the allocation of capital and the reporting in line with these needs in the economy and wider society. That's a much tougher job. But I think the very biggest owners, like CalPERS, that's the challenge. You lose your seat at the table. Yeah. Kurt Billick on divestment. I actually think that talking about divesting from coal is kind of a cheap high. The coal sector is trivial in its size yeah, it's and largely of. bankrupt. In North America, the, the coal industry it's is largely shit. bankrupt. And if you aggregated all of the pure coal mining companies listed around the world, it would not amount to a mid-sized yeah, oil company. It's the oil industry. Next question. Welcome. Good, good evening. I'm Bill Vosberg. I'm a retired teacher, so I'm a, a, a drawer of the mm-hmm. CalSTRS pension funds, mm-hmm. which is very similar. Well, CalPERS is obviously larger. And I'm with Fossil Free California, and I'm concerned about the you know, stability of all, all of our, our pension funds, which is why I'm here. And I'm concerned that the climate bubble will burst perhaps sooner than the 30-year time frame here. In that sense, the policy of engagement may not have enough time for effective boardroom action to prevent us turning the planet into toast. Anthony Hobley, why not divest? I think you need, you need divestment and engagement. I think those who can divest for moral and ethical reasons, I think they should divest because it sends a very strong message. But most of the mainstream financial markets cannot. And what you have to have is not the fluffy engagement we've seen to date, but real engagement that goes to the heart of the business model and tells these guys, I'm sorry, you have got to shrink in accordance with the carbon budget over the next two to three decades. Let's go to our next question at Climate One. Simon Moy with Natural Resources Defense Council. It seems like there's this divestment toolkit, there's the policy toolkit to really drive down investments in fossil fuels. I'm wondering about the connection between the two. Where does the divestment movement intersect with government requirements and policies? Anthony Hobley. Policy and the politics is incredibly important. 
but it's about the new emerging technologies. Hmm. This is yet another big technological transition that's going to catch these guys completely unaware, um, I suspect. Um, it's about the rising costs of oil and gas and coal, which is, is going up. This is a financial issue. This is no longer just a moral and ethical issue, and it never was. It's a financial risk issue, pure and simple. Greg Dalton has been discussing stranded assets in a clean energy future with Kurt Billick of Bocage Capital, Anthony Hobley of Carbon Tracker Initiative, and Ann Simpson from CalPERS. Email us at climateone at commonwealthclub.org. And follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at climateone. You're listening to Climate One with Greg Dalton. Greg Dalton is back now with a conversation about coal. Cheap, abundant, accessible coal. It has uplifted nations from poverty. It's enabled industries to grow and thrive. It's given families a future. But it's the dirtiest fuel on the planet. And as we move into a post-carbon future, coal is facing increasing challenges. Can new technologies clean up coal and store its pollution deep underground? And what about China's big appetite for coal? To explore the coal conundrum, Greg talked to Richard Martin, author of the book Coal Wars, The Future of Energy and the Fate of the Planet. Bruce Nillis, deputy of conservation at the Sierra Club. Frank Woolock, who is director of the Program on Energy and Sustainable Development at Stanford. And Brian Yu, director and senior analyst at City Research. Here's our conversation about the future of coal and the people who mine it. Richard Martin, you write about Eddie and Danny Karst, father and son. Tell us about that family, what it says about some of the people who have been in the coal industry for generations. Yeah, so I met Danny Karst in Kingsport, Tennessee, which is in far eastern Tennessee, sort of at the toe of the Appalachians, and they've been mining on a tributary of the Cumberland River for close to 50 years, and Danny is watching the market for his coal dry up. And Danny is a man of principle and a man of faith, and he's not ignorant or stupid about climate change at all, but it's his family's livelihood, and he has children, and and he's wondering how they're going to continue to make a living. Bruce Nillis, what do you think about the Kars family who recognize climate change, but their livelihood depends on it. What's the path for them, and what's, what's the Sierra Club have to say for them? So Sierra Club represents a couple million folks across the country, including people who live next to existing coal mining operations whose drinking water is being poisoned every day by coal mining. They are folks who live in cities where it's unsafe to breathe many days of the year because of coal burning, producing huge amounts of soot and smog pollution. And We have 13,000 people a year dying prematurely from relying on an old, dirty, inefficient fuel source. And clean, affordable electricity like wind and solar is actually providing more jobs today than in the coal mining sector. So our job ahead of us is overcoming the political barriers that the coal industry has put on our political process to make this transition as fast as possible so that we don't have to trade off providing electricity and people's health. Frank Wallach, do you agree that America should get off coal as fast as possible? Uh, rather than saying coal is terrible, uh, greenhouse gases are terrible, and greenhouse gases are produced by natural gas, they're produced by oil, they're produced by coal. So 
I think that we want to focus on getting rid of the bad rather than getting rid of coal. Brian, you, does coal deliver prosperity? I mean, cheap energy is good for consumers who are buying products made from uh, companies that have low cost of operations. It's tough for the U.S. to compete. Isn't cheap energy a good thing for American economy? To a certain extent, it is a good thing if people can't really afford something better. And that's why you're seeing in China um, so much of the power being generated by coal. But there is a a cost to it, which I think is part of this discussion. And that's the part where somehow we need to be able to price the carbon correctly so that we we don't essentially take away from the future uh, at the expense of some more modest benefit today. Frank Wolak, you're the economist here. Does coal deliver prosperity? Cheap energy certainly is uh, one of the ways that we lift people out of poverty. I I think a a great example of this is if you look at the periods 1870 to 1915 in the United States, you see a rapid increase in the consumption of coal in the United States, and at the same time, you see a rapid increase in GDP in the United States. If you fast-forward to 100 years later, you look at China, you see exactly the same pattern, which is a rapid increase in coal consumption and a rapid increase in GDP in China. It does uh, you know, deliver essentially rapid economic growth simply because of a very cheap source of energy. There are a variety of you know, external costs associated with that, but, but that sort of uh, paradigm has been repeated you know, in countries around the world almost since the start of uh, you know, the modern society. Is there a choice, though? Are renewables competitive with coal today? Fossil fuels, unfortunately, and it's made even worse by the fact of the shale gas revolution, they're just too cheap uh, at the moment if you do not include the cost of the uh, CO2 emissions. Bruce Nillis, do you agree that green is more expensive than brown? It's simply not played out by the facts on the ground. No one has built a coal plant or proposed to build a coal plant for the last six years because coal is too expensive. In the United States? In the United States. If it was so cheap, why are people not lining up to build new coal plants? And the answer is... Because they're building natural gas plants. The <laughs> num- natural the, gas the, is The number cheaper. one source of new generation in 2012, 13, and 14 was clean energy. It wasn't yeah. natural gas. So investing in wind and solar is today, with a rapid decrease in price, a much cheaper option. In Oklahoma, home of Jim Inhofe, wind is cheaper than the alternatives, which include coal and gas. So if you actually look what's happening on the ground today, clean energy is beating out fossil fuels head-to-head across the country. Frank, well, well then, that... then I guess we can get rid of the production tax credit and the renewables portfolio standards that exist in all the, the states in the United States because it's so cheap. I mean, I, again, I, I, I think it's, you know, we want to transition to a renewable future, but we, we need to be clear-headed about, you know, the relative cost and what, what are the cost drivers. Brian, you, is brown cheaper than green still? Um, all the numbers I've seen suggest that it is cheaper than green. And the thing with electricity is it's not storable. You need it on demand. So when it comes to wind and solar, it's there when the wind and, and sun are there, but you can't just flip a switch and generate electricity. So I think we need a balance of the two. Bruce Nellis, what about that when the sun doesn't shine, when the wind's not blowing? If you think about Texas, in the northwest part of Texas, the wind blows in the evening, and on the southeast part of the state, it blows during the day. You combine that with solar, you get coverage from most of the demand for electricity in Texas from wind and solar. Sure, we need backup, and that's what's exciting about all the new advances we're making in storage. We know how to do this. This is not putting a person on the moon. This is about how do we integrate clean, affordable energy so that we can get rid of these fossil fuels that are producing huge amounts of pollution as well as fueling the climate crisis. Rick Martin, did you want to say something? There is a lot of money, a lot of smart people are working on 
lithium-ion and other advanced batteries and other energy storage technology. And those costs are coming down very rapidly. So I think we're going to see a shift within 10 years in terms of our ability to cost-effectively store the electricity that's coming from intermittent renewables. How about the Republican and Democratic line, Bruce Nillis? Is it Republicans all for fossil fuels, not so much for clean energy? There's a lot of coal state Democrats. We're seeing the lines blend a lot today in Michigan, run by a Republican governor. In the last couple months, he said, our state needs to get off of coal. If you think about Michigan, it has no coal reserves. It's kind of insane that that today they're getting 50% of their electricity from coal. Michigan is a big manufacturing state, and right now they're not investing manufacturing to produce lots of wind and solar because they've got this legacy of a coal fleet. And so what the governor, a Republican, is saying, let's invest in Michigan with manufacturing jobs to do wind and solar, and let's get this coal that is now taking millions and millions of dollars out of Michigan's economy, sending it to Wyoming coal barons. That makes no sense. Richard Martin. The other thing I'll just add to what Bruce just said is that... There's a disconnect between the Republicans in Washington, D.C., who can stand on the floor of the U.S. Senate and rail against the war on coal, and their party brethren who are in these communities, who are mayors and economic development authorities, and who have to look their neighbors in the eye every day, especially in Appalachia, and they know that coal is not the future. So if Mitch McConnell wanted to serve the people of Kentucky, he would be working on finding an economically viable future for these families that are dependent on an industry that is going away, and that's an irreversible trend. We're talking about coal and energy at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We have Brian Yu from City Research, Frank Wolak from Stanford, Bruce Nillis from the Sierra Club, and Richard Martin, author of Coal Wars. Brian, you'd like to ask you, what's the future for coal companies? Do they have a path to move into another industry? I mean, Apple's going to make cars soon. Like, what, what can coal companies do? It's going to be very difficult to make the transition. Their assets are essentially coal that's in the ground. So if coal prices stay low and demand stays weak, they are going to be under pressure. So they're screwed. Uh, That would be another way of putting it. If nothing changes. (laughs) Frank Wolak, could exports save the U.S. coal companies? They already are. I mean, there's quite a few exports going out of East Coast ports. And there's also the rail lines go to Canada, and Canada certainly exports lots of uh, uh, fossil fuels uh, to Asia. There is a large market, and natural gas prices in Europe are significantly, you know, double to three times higher. In Asia, they're four to five times higher. Coal looks really good there, and that's what they're doing. Bruce Nillis? We sit on top of 25% of all the coal in the world. We know that if we burn that, our planet is toast. Something is seriously wrong and insane about that situation. So, We are vehemently against exports when clean energy is cheaper today. But do you acknowledge that if China doesn't get U.S. coal, they'll burn their own coal? I I don't. One of the most historic things that happened in the last 12 months is the leaders of both the U.S. and China stood together and said, we're going to work together to cut coal use. And that was because for the very first time in U.S. history, the U.S. is showing some leadership on climate change. We're in the process of shutting down 188 coal plants here in the United States, the largest cut in carbon of any industrialized country in the world. That has finally given the rest of the world some faith that we, the U.S., are serious about doing our part on reducing coal use and cutting carbon emissions. Richard Martin. China's coal consumption was flat last year after growing you know, at a high percentage rate for decades. And so this export strategy that Peabody Energy and other large domestic coal producers are banking on is based on a fallacy, which is that coal consumption in China and more generally in Asia has only one way to go, and that's up. China's economy grew last year. Greenhouse gases went down. That's a good thing. 
Frank Wallach. I, I think what the U.S. should do is price carbon. That is the leadership role. If you price carbon, you will certainly reduce greenhouse gas emissions. One of the things that happens if you price something and it's more expensive, people consume less of it, and that's what's going to do it. That's making evident the costs that are already there that we yeah. just don't price it. That's a social cost of carbon. So, Brian, you, is there a social cost of carbon recognized on Wall Street? No, I don't think there currently is. Like they know it's, it's out there, but we don't pay it, so we don't care. Well, part of it is you, it, it's difficult to quantify. I think you've got a lot of countries that have tried. The tough part is we really don't know what the social cost is, so essentially it's a stab in the dark. We have a cap-and-trade market in the United States. In California, the current price is about $12 a ton, and the market's working quite well. But one of the big disappointments to me is the fact that the politicians in Sacramento aren't out there publicizing the fact that, look, there is a price on carbon in California. The economy's booming. You can do it too, the rest of the world. The way I look at it, and me being a numbers guy, is I think you know, the, the numbers make the world you know, turn around. When you look at why China's burning coal, it's because coal is cheaper. Why are we burning more natural gas here is because gas is cheaper. So the way to make people move in a certain direction is you got to put a price on certain things. And then I agree with Frank that we need to put some sort of a cost on carbon, but I think the biggest issue is how do you do that, not only on a state level, but on a national level, on a global level, so that it's equal playing field. Bruce Nillis? Sometimes our markets don't work, and we have to ban something, right? The reason we don't have lead in gasoline is not because we put a price on lead in your gasoline and said it's okay to kill X number of kids, we said, no, the health evidence is uncontroversial. We need to ban the use of lead in gasoline. And so this notion of trying to come up with some fancy policy around the market, let's just agree that fossil fuels are having profound impacts. We don't need them. There are cheaper alternatives. And let's get on a reasonable glide path over the next 10, 15 years to phase them all out. Brian, you, let's ask you about the prospect of clean coal. Can coal be cleaned up with some kind of new technology, basically filters on the top of smokestacks? There's been talk about what they call CCS, carbon capture, sequestration, but it is extremely expensive um, given where the technology is today. So in essence, we really haven't been able to see people remove carbon. Frank Wellick, clean coal, is that kind of an oxymoron or is that something that could be really happening? Carbon capture and sequestration that sequesters the CO2 associated with coal, let's, let's see. I mean, the, the simplest way I think about it is, is that China's coal consumption is four times, at least four times the United States. So the big thing is we need to develop the technology that we can then hopefully export to China to help them to effectively burn the coal that we know that they're going to burn to essentially mitigate the climate implications of it. Richard Martin. It is a brute force technology. You have to force the smoke through a membrane, and there is no technology on the horizon that are going to bring those costs down. So that is a way for the coal industry to pay millions of dollars a year to say, yes, we're going to clean up coal while they keep burning it. Bruce Nillis, clean coal, worth pursuing? When you look and you're honest about the impacts coal has on the mining, the burning, and the disposal of coal ash and the pollutant, there's no step in that life cycle where there is not enormous environmental cost. So when we think about clean coal, it is truly an oxymoron because as long as we are using coal, someone is getting screwed somewhere. That's the hard and fast reality. The coal mining industry has done a terrific job of busting all the unions, and so as the coal industry is shrinking in the United States, these workers are being laid off with no pensions and no rights and a lot of health care costs. We need, as a country, to come together and help Appalachia and the workers make this transition with health care and pensions and say... Coal may have served us well over the last 100 years, but it is time, it is long due and over time to move on as fast as we possibly can because there is no such thing as clean coal. 
Let's have our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, uh, my name is Rick Mishlevsky. Both my grandfathers and most of my uncles were working-class coal miners. What I'm concerned about is the people who are working in the coal mines, or now are not working in the coal mines. There has been some noise about a carbon fee and rebate program where the rebate would be spread to the population. Wouldn't it make more sense to take that rebate and give it to the workers who are being displaced? Frank Wallach, what about the workers? I think that's a great idea. It makes a lot of sense. The unfortunate thing is, uh, who knows how the political process will work, but I would vote for it. Governor Jay Inslee in Washington, his idea is to give it to education, something else. Every politician has a different idea. Let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, John Tripp. Um, one quick question. The uh, economist brought up the notion that there are externalities associated with burning coal and putting a price on carbon emission and the suggested one that exists in California was $12 a ton. What percentage of the externalities would you say that covers? What you're looking at is sort of what is the damage associated with an additional ton of carbon emissions. There's a considerable amount of debate, but you know, I would say certainly the number is much larger than $10, probably north of $50, $60 a ton. Uh, but you know, the standard error on that is, is certainly quite large. But I guess my view is, is that, look, what we need to do is we first have to get everyone to price carbon. Then raising the price of carbon actually is going to do something. Let's have our next question. Welcome to Climate One. How long will it be before the Sierra Club goes after big oil after they calm the coal industry down? Bruce Nillis. Our goal that we are working um, through our advocacy to accomplish is In the electric sector, all fossil fuels, coal and gas, are gone in the next 15 years. We think it's doable. We think it's what the science requires. In terms of oil, through the use of electric vehicles and a whole bunch of other rapidly emerging technologies, we can slash our oil use very, very quickly, and that's what the science demands. So at least half the oil by 2030, and then all the oil out of our economy uh, over the next 35 years. Greg Dalton has been talking about coal with Richard Martin, author of Coal Wars, Bruce Nillis from the Sierra Club, Frank Woolock, director of the Program on Energy and Sustainable Development at Stanford, and Brian Yu at City Research. Thank you for joining us this hour. Free podcasts of all our Climate One conversations are available on our website at climateone.org. There you'll also find video clips, photos, and more. Please join us next time for another Climate One discussion about powering America's future. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California. Greg Dalton is our executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. Alyssa Kerr is the assistant producer. The audio engineers are Dan Gunning and John Rieger, with help from Will Llewellyn. I'm Claire Schoen, the editor. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Gloria Duffy. Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio.